My name is Nachum Siegel. You're listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Show. OU Jewish Reaction, 9 a.m. every single Tuesday at the Nachum Siegel Network following JM in the AM. And today we have some interesting guests for you on some fascinating topics. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg is a, a rabbi in the Boca Raton, rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue. And um, he has written, he has written, he has recently written an OU.org article um, that I think everybody out there is going to find fascinating. It's entitled Inquiries or Inquisitions, a Rabbi's Perspective on the Shidduch System. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. That is quite a question, Inquiries or Inquisitions. A prominent rabbi once said to me that there are only two legitimate questions that one could ever ask when it gets to the area of dating. Uh, the two questions were, in his opinion, um, is he an honest person, meaning is the other person you're investigating, so to speak, an honest person known to be truthful and not, uh, you know, one who exaggerates and, uh, and, and things like that? And secondly, do they hang out? Does this person hang out with a good group of friends? Friends with, uh, you know, high values, with good values, so to speak. Rabbi Goldberg, would you say that those two questions are legitimate? And would you say that there are any others that belong in the legitimate category? I think those questions are fantastic, Nachum, and I wish that they were being asked more. Uh, I field questions every single week, as I'm sure all my rabbinic colleagues do, regarding members in our shul um, who uh, people are investigating, and sadly, those questions are never asked. People rarely ask me about the midos of the young man or the young woman. Certainly, they don't ask about their friends. They ask me about... Uh, issues of siblings and therapy, what medications they're on. Um, if I can tell them the, the gory details of a divorce in the family, they'll ask me for references. Can you give me the name and number of a friend of each of the parents? They'll ask for all kinds of details that I think um, somewhat irrelevant and frankly end up being uh, an impediment to their child meeting somebody who might have been there by Sheraton, an outstanding person, when all they should be asking is what you just said. Tell me about the Midos. Is this someone who I can entrust my child to have a future with? Um, is it important to discuss how we got to this stage, or you're ready to ignore all that and just discuss what's happening now? We can discuss how we got here, but I think, unfortunately, it's not by leadership. I think it's by the traction or it's by the peer pressure of trying to keep up. Um, one of the things I wrote in the article is that there is a uh, st- statistical disadvantage to young women in the Orthodox Shidduch system, which is simply the demographics. The numbers favor men. And therefore, we all know, anecdotally, we all know that young boys, certainly the best of them, have long lists that they can choose from. They can be nitpicky. They can examine pictures. They can go on inquisitions, whereas many of the young women are just so grateful to, the op- op- to have the opportunity to meet people and to network. Maybe through that date, they'll be set up on another date that they they're at a, a disadvantage. And because of that, nobody wants to call out the system. Nobody wants to be the one person to protest. And the only way that we're going to scale this back a little bit is if all the Rabbanim refuse to answer ridiculous questions. If we say, I'll only speak about the midos of the individual, the friends they hang out with, I'll speak about this set of fair questions, I'm not going to entertain ridiculous questions. And if parents stop demanding and requesting and, uh, and going on these inquisitions, then we can scale the system back to be respectful. We're never going to solve the problems. This inequity of, of the demographic problem, we can't solve. And some of the other internal flaws of the Shidduch system, we can't solve. And nowhere in the article 
do I, I uh, want to presume that I have some radical solution to the whole system. The system works beautifully in some ways. It's deeply flawed in other ways. And while we can't um, perfect it, we can certainly pr- improve it. In some of the questions that you give examples um, uh, that you cite at the beginning of the article, you just mentioned about the parents' divorce, you know, the circumstances that led to it, counseling, therapy, which I'm, it sounds like you think is ridiculous. I can't agree more. Um, one of them, though, is does the father come to shul during the week or only on Shabbos? Now, I know that that's, that would be considered you know, one of these nitpicking questions, but yet, are any of the ritual questions legitimate? Are any of those, you know... How do people in the family spend their time? What are their, you know, how do they, you, how do they recreate? Are those uh, important questions or not? You know, they may be. There definitely is truth to the idea that we don't just marry our spouse, but we marry into another family that will become our family for the rest of our lives. So having some knowledge and comfort level with that other family is obviously something very important. I'm sure that we experienced an interest in, in making sure that was there as well. But there's a difference between having a certain comfort level or, or again, the, the level of question. So let, let's take that question. Right. right. Does the father come to shul only on Shabbos, or does he come during the week? Let's say the answer is he only comes on Shabbos. Right. So now you won't let your daughter go out with the son of that father. But it turns out the son is the first person. He's among the, the first asara in shul every morning. And he davens with incredible kavana. And he is admired and revealed by, but revered by his peers for his davening. But you've now what? You've eliminated him for your daughter because his father doesn't come during the week? Does that make a lot of sense for your daughter's best interests? It seems to me that if the answer to the question shouldn't impact whether you'll let your daughter go out with him, why are you asking the question to begin with? All right. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg is with us at Boca Raton Synagogue in uh, Florida. He is author of the article, Inquiries or Inquisitions, a Rabbi's Perspective on the Shidduch System. What do you think of Shidduch resumes? I think, um, as I wrote about, I think that it's, it's beautiful that we're using technology to streamline the intake, that people can exchange information in an efficient way. All that's wonderful. I'm not against the idea of having kind of an intake biography form. I think that we do have to be careful with the language we use. When we call it a resume, we've set up the system. One uses a resume when they're applying for a job. So when you call something a resume, what you're basically saying is the other party has all the power. You are applying for the privilege of being their spouse. Mm. You are applying for the opportunity of going on a date with them. You've submitted your resume for consideration. And I just think it's a backwards message to send. It's not a system of interviews where not one person doesn't have a stronger or greater power than the other. This is a system where two people are, are approaching dating and courtship that with, with a desire to learn about one another, to know one another. So I think a biography is a much better name. I'm not against the idea of sharing information and streamlining it, but I think that we shouldn't call it a resume. And what we expect to have on it, I think, is absurd. You know, when I, when I was set up with my wife, um, a, a dear friend of mine's mother called me, and for a long time, I don't have it anymore, but I still had the back of the napkin where I wrote down the few things. So she went to high school, and she worked in this camp, and she did this thing, and she has these hobbies. And this is, okay, sounds great. I trust you. You know me. You know her. You think this is worthwhile. This information shows some compatibility. I'm in. So if, if resumes or biographies have that limited information on it that just helps streamline exchanging information, I think it's fantastic. But the moment that we start to have to list, here's a great question for you. Why do resumes include the siblings? the siblings-in-law, the <laughs> professions. Why does, if, I, if my daughter is going to go out with a guy, why does what his brother-in-law does professionally matter? Why does it matter? And let's say one of the siblings 
It's, they're not proud to put that sibling on the resume because there's a sibling off the derech, there's a sibling who has challenges, there's a sibling who's, who's struggling. So now if they omit them from the resume, that's a resume that's going to have a flag immediately. I'm not going to look at it. If they put it on the resume, it's going to have a flag. Why do we have a system that on resumes we're putting the jobs of siblings in law? Why is that relevant to whether that person is a great prospective spouse for me or for my child? You know, some people blame all of this, and it's so bad to generalize, and I know it's horrible to create a category like this, but I'll say it anyway just to get your reaction. Some people blame all of this on the boys' mothers. That they're they looking do. On the boys' they mothers, that they, are, that they are looking for something specific, uh, both physically and in the type of person that they're looking for. Well, Nachum, that comes back to what we said before. If there's a demographic imbalance, then not only the boys, but their mothers, and we know Jewish mothers who love their boys and think no one's good enough for them, because they know about that imbalance, they're positioned to take advantage of it and to leverage it. And not all Jewish mothers, many or most Jewish mothers, are wonderful and devoted and keep things in proper perspective. But there are some. I spoke to people involved in Shidduchim who tell me how often mothers mothers are asking for the dress size right. of the girl that's being set up. Not just a picture. They want to know a dress size. I mean, you talk about immodest. You talk about inappropriate. You talk about a breach of what a, a Jewish couple is supposed to be. Now, I'm not suggesting there doesn't have to be attraction. Of course there has to be a degree of attraction. And I quote in the article, it's a good morning condition. You're not allowed to get married without seeing the boy can't get married without seeing the girl because if there's no attraction, he'll violate the afterlife. Of course there has to be attraction. But do we really need to know the dress size and the and the uh, it's absurd the level that it's gotten to. Yeah. Any difference, by the way, in larger communities, you know, where there's so many uh, members of the Jewish community and the uh, smaller area. I'm not suggesting that you know Boca Raton is one or the other. I'm just saying that you've traveled a little bit. Any difference uh, the way this works and the way the system works? If there's uh, many people available, if there's just a few. I think that there is a difference. There definitely is a difference. The people who are from smaller areas are disadvantaged because there are fewer people thinking of them right. and out of sight, out of mind. And so maybe they have to even make a greater effort to lower themselves to uh, compromise and to be complicit on some of these ridiculous things just in order to be noticed and to participate. I, I was shocked. Part of why I wrote this article is, you know, Boca is, Baruch Hashem, a large community. It's growing. It's on the map. Our shul has 800 families. There are numerous shuls. So it's not that we're some out-of-town tiny community. But I was shocked that being a suburb of New York, not New York proper, I st- I've been getting an increase in these phone calls and the questions. When I see messages, when I have my message sheet, number turning calls, I'm eager to do chasadim and to be involved and to answer every call. When I see that it's about a shidduch, I have a pit in my stomach. I hate those phone calls. I hate them because they're unreasonable. The degree of the inquisition and the questions, and people aren't satisfied. You know, I don't want immunity or nobody should defer to me because I'm a rav. But if I as a rabbi tell you about a certain boy, let's say, that he is an unbelieving, and I don't say this about every boy. I have credibility because I don't say it about everybody. But if I say about a certain boy, he's outstanding. He's a balmidos. I've seen him daven. He sets aside time for learning. He has ambition professionally. And I say, I, I have six girls myself. I say, I wish they were of age that one of them could go out with him. Should there really be a follow-up question? You're talking to somebody that you supposedly respect, that's why you call them, <laughs> yeah. and they say, I would love my daughter to go out with him. Right. And you know what? Every time they go, okay, that's nice. Can I get to the list of my questions? Can I get back to my inquisition here? <laughs> it's so offensive, and, and I've now, I don't entertain the questions. I say, look, I've told you what I know. This is the best that I can do, and I wish you a lot of luck. I think it's worthwhile for your daughter to meet, to meet him. 
So you may be in a different situation than I'm in because as a rabbi, I don't know if you could do this, but I'm, then you endorse my policy of uh, ignoring most of the questions when people ask me and, and just answering a couple of them. And, uh, yeah, and, and, uh, and that's exactly what I call for. Right. We can actually take back the system, and again, we can't do an overhaul, and we're never going to fully, fully repair it, but we can improve it. And it's only going to happen if we do this collectively. Because, you know, I as a rabbi can afford to do it more. The parent of a child whom they're desperate to see married or eager to see married is going to, it's going to be a lot harder for them to have the courage. Wow. But I could have the courage to do this. But if we as Rabbanim, let's start with Rabbanim, let's recruit Shachanim, and let's get parents to all scale back the level of the questions and, and where some of this has gone. Fantastic, Rabbi Goldberg. Great speaking to you about this topic and anything. You're unbelievable. Rabbi Efren Goldberg down at the Boca Raton Synagogue. You can check out the article, OU.org. And uh, let's hope, I, I hope with uh, a little bit of sanity and a little bit of uh, patience that we'll be able to at least change the system a little bit, I hope. I hope so, too. And, Nachum, thank you for having me. I've been a fan of yours since I was listening as a young child growing up in Teaneck all these years. Wow. And I must shout out to my sister-in-law, Rachel Price, in Yerushalayim, who listens to JM and the AM every single day. Oh, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. There he is, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. This is the OU Jewish Reaction Program. You're listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. Zahlen <laughs> No. Oh. 
It's the OU Jewish Reaction Program, which you can hear every single uh, a Tuesday at 9 a.m. right after JM and the AM here at uh, the Nahum Siegel Network, jmtheam.org, and, of course, on the NSN app. Um, Rabbi Jack Abramowitz is with us. He's been a guest of ours before. He has written an article um, that is entitled, Working Out in a Skirt, I Kind of disagree. Last month, there was a news story in which an Orthodox Jewish woman sued her gym for refusing to allow her to work out in a skirt. Yosefa Jalal of Crown Heights sued Lucille Roberts, a women's-only gym franchise, for violating federal, state, and city religious discrimination statutes. The uh, Rabbi Abramowitz says he saw this post and reposted on Facebook with a general sentiment of, you go, girl, but he was not so convinced that Ms. Jalal was correct. Rabbi Jack Abramowitz, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you for having me. Well, was she right or wrong? <laughs> I, it's funny because, you know, people are also asking why is she so insistent if it's a women's only gym? And I, I can't really speak to that because I don't know what's going on there, if there right. are male trainers or perhaps she never wears pants even in front of other women. So whatever the situation may be, um, I, I don't know that she's right or wrong. I do know that it's not necessarily anti-Semitic. It's not necessarily taking away from her religious freedoms. The gym may legitimately think that it's a safety issue. 
And if it is, you, you can't really complain that they won't let you violate it. And even if they personally don't, perhaps it's a liability issue that, that if something happens to her, their insurance won't back them up because she wasn't complying with their, their standard safety protocol. Right. So, you know, the, the garage I take my car to has a big sign, you know, customers are not allowed in this area because of insurance purposes. You know, if, if I say, well, I want to go and look, you say, you can't do it. I can't say it's anti-Semitic. It's his rule for safety and insurance. You know, often, it's it's funny. In, in life, in Jewish life, we often think that people are, uh, you know, sensitive to things that we take so seriously when in reality they have no clue what we're talking about. I can give you a middle, million examples. This is likely one of them where nobody's anti-Semitic. They're, certainly, they're, they're simply trying to adhere to a policy so that the people who use their gym are in the safest, you know, mode possible, and that they're, you know, not getting their skirt uh, stuck in a machine and things like that. Right. I, I'd use that as an example. I said, if, if she gets her skirt caught in the elliptical and uh, injures herself, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, somebody made a comment online. Well, she wasn't trying to use the elliptical; she was trying to take a class. It's, it's just an example. Yeah, of course, <laughs> just an example. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wish her the best. I certainly have no issues with her trying to get this. But what happened was I spoke to some of my coaches and trainers, and this is this is why I didn't pursue this from from a, uh, when it first happened, because I did speak to some of my coaches and trainers, and they were surprisingly okay with women working out in skirts. And, and I spoke to them about it, and there's actually a lot of leeway. So I... I don't know Lucille Roberts' policies, and I don't know how much they really feel it's a safety issue. But asking around, there's really a lot of things that uh, that women can do in skirts. That not being someone who wears skirts, I wouldn't know, and that's why I needed to look into it. Right. Um, someone even posted uh, on Facebook in a, in a group I belong to a link to a blog. I think it was called "You Can Do It in a Skirt," and it shows women doing all sorts of activities in in skirts, and I think that's wonderful. I'm only saying is that, that if your gym won't let you, it's not necessarily because of your face. And if something is legitimately unsafe in a skirt, then don't do something that's legitimately unsafe. I can't tell you change into pants or don't do the thing. That's got to be somebody's own decision. But I'm really a big fan of people not doing things that experts tell you are dangerous. Yeah, understood. Uh, some of the trainers that you just cited, you know, who said that they, you know, can adjust or, you know, there's, there's, no reason why their uh, customers or clients, you know, can't wear skirts. It just—it's possible some of those people are just very sensitive to all these issues now. I mean, we're in a different era now. Uh, people are are more sensitive to you know the way Jewish men and women would like to dress in different circumstances. There's just and just in general, there's such a sensitivity that you know, if someone brings up an issue of oh, I want to do this as I take advantage of your service, everyone's going to run, you know, with the climate the way things are today, got to run and say yeah, of course, no problem. Well, that's the thing that really got me to to write the article, which was the follow-up that happened on Jew in the City. That in response to this, uh, Jew in the City published an article about a 12-year-old girl who was doing gymnastics in a skirt. Right. And my initial response was, no, 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 no. Because it, it started out by saying, they say it's not safe to do gymnastics in a skirt. Like, don't praise doing gymnastics in a skirt. But as the article goes on, it explains how really most activities are okay to do in a skirt. So then the girl would evaluate when they got to the few activities that were not, whether the situation was something that was conducive to her taking the skirt off or if there were men about she wouldn't, et cetera. And, and that's fine. And that's really all, all I'm saying, which is people have to make some decisions, but don't do things that are foolhardy because there's no physical activity that's worth serious injury. Yeah. 
Do you think there's any other era in Jewish history where all this has been an issue? I think it's always been an issue, but I think we had bigger battles to fight. I think that uh, you know, we're not talking about uh, you know with the uh, Hellenization that took place in the Hanukkah story, where uh, rapid uh, mass conversion efforts were taking place, and they were trying to get us to uh, to do everything they were doing. Uh, I, I, nothing like that. I think just historically, in fairly modern times, it was tough enough having a job because right. got to take off on Shabbos. So the battle of am I wearing my yarmulke or is a woman wearing a skirt or can someone cover their hair? These these were issues that were the smaller battles when you're fighting for kosher food, being able to keep Shabbos, being able to have any form of Jewish education whatsoever. It, it's only the past couple of decades, I think, that we've really had a comfortable enough position in society where we can then get down to the nitty-gritty of, of minutia as, as far as these things go. Uh, I mean, what about someone who's applying for a job or, or wants to work at a certain place, and they know that the industry that they're applying to is a six-day-a-week or seven-day-a-week industry, and that... You know, Saturdays are commonplace, and it's common knowledge that you have to work on Saturdays, especially if you're a beginner in that industry. I mean, is that is that reason to start a discrimination suit or to to you know take someone to court or complain publicly because you're applying for a job that can't be offered to you, but just five days a week? It's so difficult because you really need the the specific facts of the situation because we do happen to have laws that people are allowed off even weekly for their religious observance. And whether a job legitimately requires it or doesn't legitimately require it, and if accommodations can be made, can't be made, how inherent it is. I mean, obviously there's a difference if somebody's uh, getting a residency in a hospital and if they're folding jeans at the gas. Right. You know, I mean, both jobs might require you to be there on Saturday, but one is a little more imperative and would, would certainly be easier to get an exception for right. uh, based on the life-saving nature, and obviously that's the hospital one. Um, but, yes. Yeah, Technically, uh, a position is supposed to is supposed to make reasonable accommodations, and letting someone work longer hours during the week, Sundays, etc. Those are certainly reasonable accommodations. Can every job necessarily do that? Is it inherent that it works on Saturday? That might be a particular thing, and it, it is a problem in the job interview because I would never advocate somebody lying. But you walk in wearing a yarmulke, they're going to know. If you don't get the job. Go prove that's why you didn't get the job. Lots of people don't get jobs. You can't assume it's because of that, but it could be because of that. So it's definitely a tightrope, but from industry to industry and job to job, it's going to be a different situation. And uh, there are certainly times when you know that's it. I mean, I know women who have been overtly discriminated against either because they were pregnant or because their potential employers were afraid they would get pregnant and leave. And they said it at the interview. Right. <laughs> but you know, like, I, I hate to. I I don't, I don't know what I'm. I don't know what era I'm going to sound like when I say this. But I remember someone once saying to me, "This goes back 20, 20, 20 I don't think anybody today would dare say this. But I remember an employer saying to me years ago, "I would never hire an Orthodox Jew." He said it to me, you know, outright. This was a, a secular Jewish person. I said, "Why not?" He said, "It's not. It's not discrimination. It's not anything. It's that if I if I hire a regular person." They're here 9 to 5 every single Monday through Friday. I hire an Orthodox Jew, and he, of course, knew the whole routine. He goes, they're off Tisha B'Av, they're off Erev Tisha B'Av, they're off Purim, they're off Erev Purim, they're off Cholomoy, they got to leave early on Fridays, they got to leave early this day and that day, and there's always something going on. Now, again, I am not advocating that anybody should have a discrimination policy. I'm simply saying I sometimes understand where people like that are coming from. Right. It's funny, though, he says that it's not discrimination. If you start a sentence with, I would never hire an Orthodox Jew, well, that by definition is discrimination regardless of your reason. Reason can be, I don't hate them, but 
but that butts that that makes it discrimination. And yeah, it's definitely a challenge. It's a challenge for them. It's a challenge for us kids in college who every September or October have to miss three weeks of, of classes on the same two days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, right. skip a week, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday again. I right. mean, it's, it's tough. So it's just, tough just, for them, it's tough for us. But there are so many Orthodox Jews doing so many things in, in the workplace now, in society, in politics. Uh, I, think, I think we've proven that this doesn't take away from our ability to, to achieve and to get the job done reasonable accommodations. And again, you know, if a job can or cannot make reasonable accommodations, that's very case by case. The whole standardized testing, you know, uh, you have to offer it on Sunday because it's offered on Saturday. It's only done on Saturday, so you have to offer yeah, it on but, Sunday. But they do have that Sunday administration, as you said. Yeah, no question about that. And once upon a time, that was not the case. Right. So we, we really have come a long way. And that's the thing. We get complacent, and, and we get comfortable, and we get a little spoiled. Um, we, we may have a sense of entitlement, assuming that everyone always has to accommodate every need. Not every need is necessarily the employer's business, but some some needs are, and we're still finding that uh, that line. That's why on the uh, gym issue, you're you kind of disagree. <laughs> you want I, the, I initially you, disagreed stronger because of the safety aspect, right. but after speaking to some people in the industry, I see there's way more leeway there. It's a very gray area, and uh, like I said, with with coaches and informed decision making, most things can actually be done. Yes. All right, Jack Abramowitz, thank you so much for joining me today. Very interesting article and a very interesting conversation. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, Jack Abramowitz, you can check it out at OU.org. Very interesting article about that case specifically, and, of course, this conversation uh, much, much deeper in terms of the entire uh, general area, the entire general area of discrimination. More coming up. This is the OU Jewish Reaction Program, and you are listening to the Nahum Siegel Network.
Waking up, I'm living life, going places, so much strife. Starting to think about what's gonna be. Who knows, who cares, who dares to share a bit of what you feel inside. Open up a little trust, cause we're all family. Listening to the Nachum Siegel Network, the OU Jewish Reaction Program on uh, Tuesdays at uh, 9 a.m. right after JM and the AM. Some great guests so far. We have another great guest for you. Rabbi Chaim Nidich is with us, known as one of NCSY's premier educators, based in Atlanta, Georgia. He runs 14 thriving JSU clubs, JSU's Jewish Student Union, in the area. Estimates that they serve close to 2,500 students. Uh, there is, I can only imagine how uh, interesting his job is. He connects students to Judaism down in the Atlanta area. Rabbi Chaim Naidich, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 2,500 students. First of all, is that an accurate number? It's actually, it is an accurate number. The OU created a uh, database system uh, that has been tracking this, and uh, I myself was shocked to find out how many teams were reaching. Pretty amazing. What's unique about JSU? I know that uh, in general, you know, Kirov and Kirov with Youth has a lot of different angles and programs that one can pursue. What's unique about JSU that would uh, indicate why it's been so successful? I think JSU really uh, opens a doorway into the Jewish community for a lot of kids. I think that um, back in 2006, when we were getting this whole thing started, I was actually sitting in a um, 
the Jewish Federation meeting. And just want to mention Jewish Federation in Atlanta. Awesome. Love those guys. <laughs> and um, uh, what happens is this, is that they bring up a statistic that two out of three Jews in Atlanta are unaffiliated. But that number, when it came to, to teens, it was more than 90% of the kids. I was like, this is crazy. More than 90% of the teens, they don't know anything about Judaism. They're not connected. They're not going to anything. They're not involved. You know, what are we going to do? So I sat down and I thought to myself, what does every single Jewish kid have in common? You know, and that is they all go to school. Right. So we basically saw JSU being used in other areas around the country. So we said, you know, let's try and implement that here. So we got a grant. We got it started. And um, thank God it's kind of grown. And one of the things that we started to notice about it is that uh, there's three major obstacles that Jewish teens or reasons why they weren't getting involved. And that was really cost, transportation, and scheduling, right? Mm-hmm. Cost, they're being priced out of other programs. Scheduling, teens are doing a million different things today. I mean, I, when I was in high school, I don't even remember doing this many extracurricular activities, <laughs> but say kids are highly overprogrammed. Right. And then you have transportation. Atlanta, different than many cities, is enormous, meaning I drive an hour and a half outside of Atlanta, and it's still called Atlanta. Wow. So um, it's hard for kids to get around. So really, by going to their schools, we're there, you know, it's adjacent to their school day, so if they can get to school, they can come to us. In terms of uh, scheduling as well, it, you know, it eliminates that. And finally, everything we do is free, so it makes it very easy for kids to be able to gain access. But um, more importantly, I have a unique theory on Jewish education, which has also made us very successful. Um, Rabbi Chaim Neidich is with us. Um, I mean, you'd, you'd have to – it's sort of like a Jewish club, right? It's sort of like kids in a school who are Jewish going to a club a, you know, that's made for them, right? That's essentially what it is. Totally. It's, I think it's that plus more than that, because um, for a lot of teens, I find that um, you know, we're really helping build Jewish communities in their school, where it's not only they're going to participate, but it's really kind of helping create a social network for them. Um, you know, Jewish teens, especially in the South, there's not a whole lot of Judaism, and there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, I'd say Christian stuff down in the South. It's very, you know, the Bible Belt is very popular. So for the Jewish kids, it really creates this opportunity for them to really connect and relate and get together. But that's that's and, why that's why I wonder how it works in an environment like that. I mean, uh, you'd think that the peer pressure not to join a Jewish group or the stigma associated with going to join a student, uh, you know, Jewish club might be worse in an area like that. And yet it's so successful. How do you explain it? So I'll tell you something. It actually started off that way where the whole anti-Semitism thing, people were warning us if we get started with these types of clubs that will bring on anti-Semitism. And um, we found it to be just the opposite. I'll tell you something, like, incredible. Um, you know, over time, what started to happen is, and, and this is, was a remarkable thing, I was asked to speak at a high school graduation for Centennial High School. Uh, and um, what happened was that um, at this graduation, right, there are kids who are actually walking down the aisle wearing the yarmulkes. You know, normally they wear those square hats. These right. kids are walking down wearing yarmulkes. Uh, you know, as a recognition of how successful the club has been and, and to show their Jewish pride to everyone and how proud they are to be Jewish. And what ends up happening is that one of the kids who walked down the aisle with the Amcon was the president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, right? This kid, you know, started coming to our club, I think, originally to do a little more missionizing. In the end, he was just wowed by just how nice and open and warm everyone was and how welcoming everyone was. And I think that he got a glimpse that, like, Judaism isn't what he had heard it was. And I think it started to impact even the secular community. So, and um, even a lot of times non-Jewish teens who've attended our programming are now being supportive of their Jewish friends, and it's not having the, I guess, initial reaction people might think it has. I wonder if that's unique for this era. Would it have been the same 20 years ago? You don't know. That, uh, you know, uh, I, I can't really say, but I can definitely tell you that, um, you know, it's been great, and uh, a lot of kids are finding a lot of success with it.
Pretty amazing. Rechaim Neidich is with us. Jewish Student Union Program down in Atlanta, Georgia, has been extremely, extremely successful, to say the least. Uh, I understand its uniqueness and uh, and its success. What about the nuts and bolts? What happens during these sessions? What does JSU do when they have all those students together? <laughs> so all of our program was really made collaboratively between myself and the teams. Um, what happens is, is that uh, every program starts out with like uh, a few, um, you know, with a few announcements, whatever Jewish going on in the community, just to let kids know to give them an opportunity to connect. Uh, from there, we'll introduce whatever activity we're doing, and everything is really hands-on and interactive. Uh, we kind of stay away from long speeches and lectures uh, for a few reasons. One is I find that when you give like a lecture, what happens is, is that um, the lecturer is disconnected from the teams and disconnected and there's no relationship building. Here, by creating interactive activities, uh, kids are able to get to know each other as well as get to know me and really kind of build this community that we want to get started. So I'll give you an example of one of our projects. Uh, one of the things we do is we make challah, right? Thank God I have an amazing wife. My wife makes, you know, literally hundreds upon hundreds of pounds of challah dough for these kids. And um, what happens is that every kid will get their own challah dough, and they'll all sit around at a table. And, um, again, some of these clubs have like a 100-something kids, so it's pretty incredible when you see the entire thing in action. You're totally invited to come join us. <laughs> but every kid's making, the, you know, making their challah, and they're trying to figure out how to braid it. And I'm trying to explain how we do it, where challah comes from, right, the entire concept right, of Mun, and um, what happens is, is that uh, the kids, while they're doing it, they're talking, saying, hey, how'd you do this, how'd you do that, and it opens up the opportunity for them to really start to get to know each other. But even better, what happens is that after the club, kids take their collars home, and they want to bake it, right? And most teens, they don't know how to bake collar, right? So what do they do? They go, they go to their mom, like, mom, I have this giant collar. I'd, I'd like your help baking it. And uh, then I get calls from, like, literally tens upon tens of parents, right? all calling me saying, this is incredible. How'd you do this? And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? They said, my entire life, I want to have a Jewish you know, moment with my child. I've never known how to bring it up. I've never known how to address it. And now here I am sitting in my kitchen baking a challah with them. It's wow. incredible. That's cool. So it, it's, been, it's been very cool and very rewarding. And, uh, yeah. I assume you've had some incredible success stories, those who've gone on to become real Jewish leaders after uh, you know, their, their stint with you, you at JSU. So totally. We've had... Some very, very successful alumni. Um, you know, for starters, right, three Hillels in the state of Georgia were started by JSU alumni, which is pretty incredible when you think of how many Hillels there are in Georgia, right? Um, as well, one of our teams just opened up Moisha House here in Atlanta, which some of you might be familiar with. I mean, and then at the same time, we have teams have gone on to the IDF. We have teams who have gone off to different yeshivas and seminaries. I have one team who's actually a rub now in Israel. So, uh, we have a lot of teams who really come through and gone all different directions, all really encouraging them to follow like their passions Jewishly to really make a difference in the Jewish world. I'll be careful how I ask this. Are most parents supportive of all this? Totally. That's one thing that's very uh, important to us is that um, we really always try and work with the team. The team doesn't exist in a vacuum. They're really part of a family. And uh, a lot of parents are very, very grateful for it. Because when you're sending your kid, and uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but... Um, and at this Federation study I referred to beforehand, 25% of the Jews in Atlanta were born in Atlanta. Wow. 33% were born in New York. Really? So for most people coming from, yeah, crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Where were you born? So, uh, uh, New York. Also New York, huh? You're one of the 33%. <laughs> that I am. So uh, a lot of these parents that have moved down from New York, they, um, they really want their kids to be engaged Jewishly because when they were going to school, right, many of them went to public school, Everybody was Jewish. Right. They come down here, right? It's uh, it's really not that way. So they're thrilled to have us there. They're thrilled to see their kids getting involved. They're thrilled that their kids are getting involved Jewishly. And um, 
it just uh, it, it builds like a really strong environment. You know, whereas before we got involved, there's no Judaism in the schools. Everything was heavily Christian. And today, you know, it's just become much more open for kids to be Jewish, talk about being Jewish, and um, as well bring, you know, a lot of uh, people who are pro-Israel to really have that stance and really open up people's eyes to Israel as well. All with pleasant relationships, right? No, 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 totally. no battles have to be fought, thank God. Not at all. I mean, the South is also very family-oriented, so you really have to work within the family. And to me, I think it's just, uh, you know, again, family is super important. Rabbi Chaim Neidich is with us down in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia, Jewish Student Union, JSU, attracting thousands and doing quite a job, to say the least, with a lot of great success stories. Uh, what's the next step? Do you just keep opening up these uh, these clubs, these JSUs? So we just opened up another three schools this year. I mean, we have a lot of different ideas right now that we're working on. Um, but definitely, we have 35 schools right now on our waiting list, and my goal is eventually to add more staff and get to more of those schools. I guess this could be replicated, but in some ways, it sounds like you're suggesting that this is really unique to Atlanta. Which one is it? So I think that um, I think our initial success was in some ways unique, but I think that's really something which is replicable. Um, the programming that we created here uh, is really being copied right now at 200 plus uh, Jewish Student Union clubs across North America. So we see it is very duplicatable. <laughs> I like that. Uh, well, we wish you luck with that, and I'm sure those who are trying to duplicate success are going to be looking at you very, very closely. Have you heard of any that uh, are doing it already successfully or not? Thank God. They're all doing. They're all very successful, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Atlanta, you know, here we just happen to have a lot of, I guess we're on the cutting edge of things, and our success and the way we've been embraced by the community uh, is really a step above. But uh, my hope is in time, as people stick with it, they'll be able to, uh, you know, replicate the success as well. And you made a reference earlier to the Federation. It sounds like lay leadership of all stripes have really stepped forward to help you guys out. I mean, it's pretty incredible here, you know, meaning that um, originally there was definitely a lot of concern about us going into the schools. But um, between the Jewish Federation, we have uh, Reform Synagogues, Conservative Synagogues. You know, their rabbis are sending their kids to our programs. They're sending out information about our programs. So it's pretty incredible to be embraced by the entire community. Really cool. Doing great work down in Atlanta with JSU, the Jewish Student Union. Rabbi, anything you would like to add? It's a pleasure to get to be on your show. And, um, I mean, to me, the most important thing that I think that viewers should know is that Jewish people in general, especially people that may seem unaffiliated, are very open. And it's just a matter of really reaching out and uh, trying to connect them and uh, trying to help them, you know, enjoy the positives of Judaism, and uh, I think we'll be very successful. Very important message. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Rabbi Chaim Neidich down in Atlanta, Georgia, Jewish Student Union, and uh, doing quite a job attracting thousands and really making a difference in the lives of thousands of Jewish students and their families. We thank Rabbi Neidich. You are listening to the Nachum Siegel Network, the OU Jewish Reaction Program, Tuesdays between 9 and 10, right after JM in the AM. I thank you for tuning in. OU Jewish Reaction Program, and a reminder, OU has all the information about all their programs at OU.org. And, of course, you can like our Facebook update page, Nachum Siegel Network, and be up to date on everything that's happening at the Nachum Siegel Network. Thanks for listening in. OU Jewish Reaction Program right here at the Nachum Siegel Network.
Thank you. 